Welcome to a new sponsor, A.N. Weber Incorporated. Now in their 76th year, Weber has offices in Kankakee, Illinois, Nashville, Tennessee, El Paso, Texas, and Chandler, Arizona. Whether you're looking for company equipment to haul dry van or flatbed freight, or logistic services for all types of freight, or even a career in driving, maintenance, or sales, call Mark Tedford at 815-939-2235. You can apply online at anweber.com. Weber has immediate openings for drivers in all areas and mechanical technicians in Kankakee, Illinois, and El Paso, Texas. Weber is also looking for logistic agents across the country. Again, call Mark Tedford at 815-939-2235 or apply online at anweber.com. Greetings, folks, and welcome to the 36th edition of Weber's Whipping Post. I'm the grumpy old guy, Weber, and I'm delighted you took the time to listen. This episode is entitled, About Chicago's Tent Cities. Today I'm going to talk about the Forbes Billionaires List, Senator Bob Menendez, good riddance to Mark Milley, Trump's assassination, the Chicago Bears, and other material before finishing with my latest opinion piece. But first, this episode came to you from the George Ryan Jr. Insurance Group. Everybody needs insurance, so why not buy it from the great folks at George Ryan Jr. Insurance, who supports programs like mine. You can depend on George Ryan Jr. Insurance, so please go ahead and give George a call at 815-936-0075. That's 815-936-0075 or look them up on their website and save on insurance at grinsure.com. An update from last week's podcast and commentary. Several people chimed in with their thoughts about the greatest guitarist. Hey, I do have some closet rockers out there. I just knew it. I did get questioned by people on my choices, as they had one they felt should have been on the list. Two thought Jimi Hendrix should have won although both Keith and Chris admit to not knowing much on the subject, which I agree. There was a mention for Joe Walsh, who in addition to a great solo career was with James Gang and currently the Eagles. Listen to Joe do Walk Away with the James Gang. Surprisingly, Jeff Lynn from the Electric Light Orchestra and the Traveling Wilburys was mentioned. Two other fellow guitar enthusiasts mentioned bluesman Joe Bonamassa, an excellent axe wielder. Check out the album Joe did with Beth Hart and tell me it isn't a classic. I found a guy named Al who did appreciate Rory Gallagher on the list and actually saw him live. I'm so jealous. Then Don from my church surprised me with somebody I actually did overlook, the late Gary Moore, who had a great solo career after leaving Thin Lizzy. Another update, I am in the process of signing with the Pathfinder Marketing Agency in Kankakee, Illinois, to market my commentaries, podcasts, and novels. More information will be made available, but this will initiate a new and improved website and Facebook site. Who knows, I might even wind up on Instagram. But I swear to you, I will not be on China's information collection service known as TikTok. And speaking of my book, I have approved the final proof, and it is heading off to the printers as you listen. 
They said it will be available in 10 to 15 days. There is another novel already in the works, this one called Ship of Fools. So Forbes has come out with their 2023 billionaires list. There are 2,540 billionaires in the world, and sadly, I ain't one of them. This number is down from last year when there were 2,668 billionaires. 254 dropped off the list from last year, but 150 jumped on. The average age of a billionaire is 65. The oldest is 101-year-old George Joseph at $1.3 billion, who made his money in insurance. There are 15 billionaires that are 30 years or younger. One is only 18, but he inherited his father's empire. There ought to be a law that you can't be a billionaire until you're 30, in my humble opinion. By the way, 69% of the world's billionaires are self-made. I met a billionaire once, Frank Love, owner of the Love's truck stop chain. When he passed away earlier this year, he was worth $10 billion, of which my company made a sizable donation to that pot of money. Not much has changed in the top 10 billionaires that are reported on last year. The Frenchman Bernard Armaud of Louis Vuitton fame traded places with Elon Musk, going from second to first. He's worth $211 billion, folks, up a mind-blowing $54 billion in one year, mostly from selling the ladies expensive purses and perfume. Elon's value decreased to a point he's down to his last $180 billion. Francois Bettencourt Myers, granddaughter to the founder of L'Oreal, is the richest woman in the world with 81 billion bucks. Man, there must be a lot of money in cosmetics and women's fashion. I got in the wrong industry. Speaking of my industry, transportation, Fred Smith of FedEx is worth $4.6 billion, and Jonelle Hunt, widow of J.B. Hunt, is worth $4.3 billion. Also, Brad Jacobs of XPO Logistics is worth $3.7 billion, and Jerry Moyes of Swift Transportation is worth a billion and a half. At one time or another, my company has hauled freight for all those companies. You see a pattern here? Six people in the world are worth north of $100 billion, and none of them are in transportation. 735 of the billionaires are Americans, 495 are Chinese, and another 169 are from India. The 735 Americans' net worth combined totals an eye-popping $4.5 trillion. Golfers, you helped enrich Tiger Woods as he's worth $1.1 billion now. Michael Jordan, the greatest basketball player who ever breathed, is worth $2 billion. Beer drinkers made Richard Yingling a billionaire, and you can't even buy it here in Illinois. Poor Jimmy Buffett. He finally made the billionaire's list, and then he died. Speaking of Illinois, Governor J.B. Toilets Pritzker is still worth the same inherited $3.5 billion he was worth last year. He probably hoards it under his mattress. Conversely, Forbes says Donald Trump has lost about $700 million and is now only worth $2.5 billion. But the next time some asshole says Trump isn't worth what he says, look him up on the Forbes list. They pull no punches, folks. And do any of you feeling bad for the New York Jets because they paid Aaron Rodgers all that money and he only played four snaps? Well, don't be. The owner of the Jets, Woody Johnson, has a net worth of $3.4 billion. All right, enough with the billionaires, I know.
Well, they're going after New Jersey Democrat Senator Bob Menendez again for taking bribes. I did say again, about time. He and his wife, Nadine, have been indicted with federal charges for taking hundreds of thousands of dollars of bribes between 2018 and 2022. His gifts include cash, gold, and Mercedes-Benz, an exercise machines from the government of Egypt and three New Jersey businessmen. One of the businessmen, Fred Davies, has already pleaded guilty and received probation. It is the second time Menendez has been indicted, having been charged in 2017, but acquitted by a hung jury. During the raid on his home in 2022, they found $566,000 in cash and 13 gold bars, along with the convertible Mercedes. Menendez allegedly gave military aid to Egypt by handing over U.S. information requesting senators to release the hold of $300 billion in aid to Egypt and lobbying for a dam on the Nile River. If convicted, which won't happen, he could face up to 45 years in prison, which also won't happen. The Senate is not going to eat one of its own. On his podcast, Dan Bongino made the point that questioned how Menendez must have got cross-sweater with the Biden crime syndicate. Otherwise, he would have never gotten indicted. Good point, Dan. My thoughts are, indictment, hell, why would this not be treason for giving away military information to Egypt? Undeterred, in typical political gall, Menendez said Monday that he's probably going to announce his re-election bid soon. Speaking of treason, Donald Trump said last week that outgoing Joint Chief of Staff Mark Milley's conduct was worthy of execution. This does not bode well for Milley should Trump get re-elected. Trump said Mark Milley, who led perhaps the most embarrassing moment in American history with his grossly incompetent implementation of the withdrawal from Afghanistan, handing over billions of dollars of the finest military equipment, will be leaving the military next week. This will be a time for all citizens to celebrate. This guy turned out to be a woke train wreck who was actually dealing with China to give them a heads up on the thinking of the president. This is an act so egregious that in times gone by, the punishment would have been death. I don't know if I'd go so far as execution, Mr. Trump, but certainly treason should be discussed. If you recall, Milley was the pissant psychophant who called China twice to assure them the U.S. didn't have plans to attack China during the Trump administration. Milley didn't have the authority to do so and it undermined a sitting U.S. president. In other administrations, but Trump's, this would be looked on as an act of treason. And speaking of Trump and execution in the same sentence, how long do you think it will be until the deep state has Trump assassinated? Pretty bold remark, ain't it? They have thrown everything they can at him to date, and if he survives these sham lawsuits, assassination very well could be the only option left for them. I don't think the deep state is above that. And it's not just me thinking that, folks. There are a growing number of people, such as Sean Hannity, Tucker Carlson, and Dan Bongino, who fear this may very well happen, and I, for one, agree with them. You heard it here first. For the love of God, I hope I'm wrong. Did you hear about the Florida alligator that ate a human? True story. Last week in Largo, Florida, a 13-foot-long gator was found with the body of a woman in its mouth. Somehow, 41-year-old Sabrina Peckham was attacked and eaten by a gator. 
A decision was made that the gator had to be put to death for devouring Miss Peckham. But not to worry, folks. They actually reported this. With the help of the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission, the alligator was humanely killed. God forbid the gator was inhumanly killed after it ate a person. The Washington Compost, which is Jeff Bezos' private newsletter, and ABC published a poll last week that shows Trump beating Biden by 10 points, 52 to 42 percent. The other 6 percent probably weren't aware there was an election coming up. Younger Trump voters outnumber younger Biden voters by a whopping 20 percent. This caused shorts to wad up throughout the political world. This just can't be. It has to be an outlier. The outlier comment came from the Washington Compost, the very institution that produced the poll. Most media sources did not take kindly to the poll and had to mock it publicly. I personally don't put a lot of stock in the polls. None of the news sources had any problem with the poll when it showed the two men were deadlocked. But when it turned to Trump winning handily, the news media went apoplectic. Of course, there is no way for a poll to take into account how the Democrats plan to cheat in 2024. Everybody likes to poke fun of Trump for his claims of election interference in the 2020 presidential election, but nobody bats an eye when that old crone Hillary Clinton brings it up. As a side note, some folks understandably don't like it when I call people names. But in the case of calling Clinton an old crone, let me define myself here. First, Clinton is now 76 years old. If people call me elderly at 66, then she certainly can be considered old. As for crone, the internet defines crone as an old woman who may be characterized as disagreeable, malicious, or sinister. If that doesn't fit that woman to a T, then I'll be a monkey's uncle. Anyway, on a recent interview with Jen Psaki, the old crone claimed Russia, specifically Vladimir Putin, got involved in the 2016 election because he didn't want Hillary to win. She's afraid he will do it again in the next election. He does this because of his hatred for America and democracy, the old crone grunted. Hey, at least you didn't lose by a score of 70 to 20 like the Broncos did. For the first time in my life, I'm beginning to feel sorry for my friends who are Bear fans. It was one miserable, goofed-up week for the once-proud franchise. Papa Bear Hallis must have rolled over in his grave. This week, they lost their 13th consecutive game in embarrassing fashion to the Kansas City Chiefs. The final score was 41-10, and the game was really not even that close. The Bears were fighting amongst themselves with quarterback Fields calling out the coaching staff for not doing their job. Then, during Sunday's game, new hotshot wide receiver D.J. Moore walked off the gridiron after another Fields pass whizzed by him. Earlier in the week, their defensive coordinator resigned because of inappropriate behavior. What is meant exactly by inappropriate behavior is not known at this time, as the media is protecting his privacy. Side note, which the media had that same sense of decorum when it comes to matters of Trump. Supposedly, the FBI is involved in the inappropriate behavior matter. Time will tell. Also, as learned, the Bears had $100,000 worth of equipment stolen from Soldier Field last week. 
Perhaps it's time for the McCaskey family to consider selling the Venable franchise. According to Forbes, it's worth $6.3 billion and makes about $200 million in profit every year. Contrast to the Green Bay Packers franchise, which is valued at $4.6 billion. There's always room for more Packer fans, should Bear fans want to cross over. Shout out to one of my best friend's daughters, Casey, who has announced publicly she's crossed the Great Cheddar Curtain to root for the beloved boys in green and gold. Had a girl, Casey Bug. So did she do it or not? One of America's greatest whodunit stories is that of the infamous Lizzie Borden. Talking about the woman, not the rock band. This story has fascinated me since I was a kid. I remember reading a book about it. If you're not familiar, Lizzie Borden was accused of the axe murders of her father and stepmother on August 4, 1892. She was eventually acquitted due to the men on her jury not believing a woman was capable of such atrocity. The murders happened at the home she lived in with her father, sister, and stepmother in Fall River, Massachusetts. Her widowed father, Andrew, was wealthy but stingy. At the time he was bludgeoned to death, he was worth about $10 million in today's money. The home they all lived in did not even have indoor plumbing, despite it being all arranged by the wealthy families in their neighborhood. He would later marry Abby Gray to help raise his two daughters. Lizzie and her older sister Emma, neither of which ever married, were raised very religious, heavily involved in numerous church activities, including teaching Sunday school. Lizzie did not particularly care for her stepmother, feeling she married her father for wealth. The girls rarely had meals with their parents, as testified by Bridget Sullivan, who was the 25-year-old maid for the home. Sullivan was also theorized to have been Lizzie's lover by one crime novelist. Lizzie began raising pigeons at the home, which upset her father. He killed the pigeons with a hatchet, which upset Lizzie. Recall Andrew was murdered with a hatchet. A subsequent family argument, probably over Andrew giving away real estate to Abby's family, led the sisters taking an extended vacation of which they did not return until a week before the murders. The night before the murders, the girl's maternal uncle, John Morse, came to the house to stay a few days to discuss business matters. It was thought possibly about the property. Andrew was giving away that the girls must have thought would be theirs. Morse left the house that morning to visit another relative who was due back for lunch. Father Andrew left soon afterwards for his walk. It was speculated Abby was killed sometime between 9 and 10.30. Andrew returned from his walk about 10.30. He laid down for a nap, but was discovered dead by Lizzie around 11.10. Curiously, Sullivan testified she had helped him out of his boots and into his slippers. The crime scene photo, where he'd been bludgeoned, shows him wearing boots. Lizzie's accounts to the public were strange and contradictory. To the investigating officer, she seemed calm and poised. Prescribed morphine to calm her nurse during the inquest, it possibly affected her testimony. She refused to answer some questions, even those that would be beneficial to her. She was jailed on August 11th. During the trial, they showed the skulls of the victims, and she fainted. A jury of all men acquitted her after only an hour and a half of deliberation.
Upon her deathbed in 1948, Sullivan confessed to her sister that she had changed her testimony on the stand to protect Lizzie from what is unknown. The misreporting of the slippers, at least in my mind, would indicate Sullivan knew more than she told. The sisters would move into a larger house, an exclusive part of Fall River, called The Hill. For the rest of her life, Lizzie was ostracized by society. In 1905, Emma moved out of the house after a spat between the two sisters, and they never saw each other again. They both died nine days apart in 1927. Lizzie died of pneumonia at the age of 66, and at the time she was worth over $5 million. She did leave money in a trust for perpetual care of her father's grave. Ironically, Elizabeth Montgomery, Samantha of Bewitched fame, played Lizzie in her ABC movie. I remember seeing that movie, too. After Elizabeth died, a genealogist documented that Lizzie and Elizabeth were cousins, descended from John Luther from Massachusetts. There have been numerous books, plays, movies, and even mock trials on whether Lizzie killed her parents, and none seem to have reached a definitive conclusion. The last mock trial even ended in a hung jury. Some postulate others, such as Uncle Moran, Emma, and even Sullivan, might have been the murderers, but history has inferred Lizzie was the murderer. We will probably never know. Hey, remember that song Cherish by the Association? I recall watching them sing that song on the Ed Sullivan Show when I was a kid. The guy that wrote that song, who was also a member of the band, Terry Kirkman, passed away last week at age 83. Rest in peace, Terry. There is now a new ranking for the world's 50 best hotels. Pasolacqua in Montrezio, Italy comes in at the number one hotel in the world. It's a newly renovated luxury boutique hotel owned by the DeSantis family on Lake Como. The property was originally owned by Pope Innocent XI, and the villa was built in the 18th century by Count Andrea Lucini Pasolacqua. Among the Count's friends was the composer Bellini, who composed the opera, I'm not going to try to pronounce it, at his home in 1831. The hotel has only 24 rooms and goes for the bargain price of $1,600 a night. Rounding out the top five hotels in the world are the Rosewood in Hong Kong, the Four Seasons in Bangkok, the Upper House in Hong Kong, and the Amen in Tokyo. Pathetically, America's top entry was all the way down at number 25 with the Amen in New York. The next U.S. hotel to make the list was all the way down at number 48 with the Equinox, also in New York. This podcast is brought to you by Jeff and Brandon Chero at Court Street Ford, now in their 40th year serving the Kankakee County area. Stop by their showroom at 558 William Latham Drive in Bourbon A and check out that amazing GT in the showroom. You can save up to $6,000 on a selection of Ford 150 pickups. Core Street Ford is open from Monday through Saturday, offering new car and truck sales, pre-owned autos, and vehicle servicing. You can call them at 815-348-7024 or check out their website at www.courtstreetford.com. Order the Ford of your dreams today. And now for my commentary from the week. Fox News recently reported Chicago's plan for housing the recent influx of illegal immigrants. 
The reports states are currently about 2,200 illegal immigrants housed in 21 shelters in Chicago police stations and airports. Chicago is contracted with a private security firm named Garda World Federal Services for a tent city to be erected at a cost of $29.4 million. It didn't say where that money came from. There are currently over 10,000 illegals in Chicago, in total going back to last year. I was unable to ascertain who qualified for the tents. When I read this, I thought this should be interesting. Tent living in a Chicago winter. Wouldn't the money be better spent buying and renovating existing vacant buildings, such as a hotel, school, or old warehouse? There is no shortage of those kinds of buildings throughout Chicago, and most have existing infrastructures. It said these tents will have HVAC systems to heat the tents to comfortable temperatures. The report didn't say anything about the floors of the tents, sitting on what becomes a frozen tundra in winter. Each tent holds 12 people. If I'm the head of an illegal immigrant family of four, are we taking the entire tent, or are they going to stuff eight more people in with my family? This could cause some sticky situations if Johnny from Family A is sneaking into Sally's cot from Family B. The report further states the tents will have bathrooms. It didn't elaborate, but I bet that means portable toilets. On the inside or outside of the tent, huh? Consider the issues this could cause, but you sure won't win them outside in the Chicago winter. There will also be separate tents for kitchen, showers, and laundry. I did a double take when I saw the word showers. Hope there is security there, as it sounds like another recipe for disaster. Then there were some other troubling aspects about the announcement catching my attention. Garda World was selected because they already had contracts with the Illinois Emergency Management Agency and the Illinois Department of Health. Wonder how competitive the quote was. This might explain why renovation of an existing building wasn't considered. There will be a system in place for individuals to file grievances for any issues that arise. So illegal immigrants will have their own system to file a grievance. Illinois citizens' options are to contact overworked police forces. Why can't illegal immigrants use the same system we already bought and paid for? Chicago will continue to receive new illegal immigrants from flights from Texas, New York, and other cities. Wait, from New York? So these people that are transported from the border to New York, and then New York, supposedly a sanctuary city slash state, is shipping them to Chicago or other places? That seems awful hypocritical. Chicago citizens will be given jobs for staffing and meal services. So that means more tax money with the obligatory Chicago bureaucracy and double dipping spent on employing people to serve the illegal immigrants. No mention was made of what that would cost taxpayers. And then there was this eye-opener. Did you know that last Wednesday the Biden administration stated it's going to grant temporary legal status to the half a million Venezuelans already here in the country? Bam! Just like that, there are a half million new Democrat voters. Why just Venezuela, Joe? According to Pew Research, most of the 10.7 million illegal immigrants in this country live in just 20 major cities with the largest population in New York, Los Angeles, Houston, and Dallas-Fort Worth. Chicago, you have some catching up to do. The hypocrisy of this illegal immigrant invasion with democratic states and cities would be laughable if it weren't so damn pathetic. 
They historically criticized border governors for not wanting them and shipping those poor folks out rather than placing the blame where it belongs. The governors and mayors of those sanctuary areas deserve the problem that are being shipped to their cities. If you're going to talk the talk, it isn't right they're using taxpayer money to put various band-aids on this illegal immigration issue. The entire situation and the subsequent issues they cause can be laid right at the feet of Joe Biden, Alejandro Mayorkas, and the rest of the Biden crime syndicate. If I were Brandon Johnson of Chicago, or Eric Adams of New York, or Karen Bass of Los Angeles, every time a bus or plane arrives with more illegal immigrants, I turn the damn thing around and take it right back to Washington, D.C. Washington, D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser, the United States Congress, and the White House deserve those people and their issues, not the rest of the country. And that's all I got for you, folks. If you like this podcast, please tell others. If you'd like to advertise on this podcast, please tell me. I could always use more sponsors. Check out my blog at www.weberswhippingpost.com. Thanks a million for listening. Bye now.